Mother. Wife. Air Force veteran. Gun rights advocate. This is Stacy on the Right. Here's your host, Stacy Washington. Welcome to a fantastic Friday night with Stacy on the Right. You're in the right place at the right time. SiriusXM.com. We love you being a part of our SiriusXM nation and being subscribers. And to that end, we bring you the very best guests. And tonight, I'm welcoming in Dr. Gad Sad, author of The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life, at Gad Sad on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Dr. Sad. Oh, it's so great to be with you. And just so that your listeners know, it's The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D. It's a play. It's my family name. It's not S-A-D. Yes, absolutely. And so these are the kind of different idiosyncrasies that make an appearance by you here on our show so special because we've heard so much about your work and it's actually a fantastic title. Um, You are teaching us in this book about true happiness. So you're just in case everybody, I I know this, but you might not be aware, it's a psychologist, you're a YouTube star, and you're talking about how a happy life is real and attainable. Tell us more about why you decided to write about this. So, you know, as you said, I have a, you know, uh, I'm grateful enough to have a big public platform. And I noticed that whenever I would, uh, you know, post something, people would get back to me and say, how is it that you're always tackling such thorny and difficult subject, yet you always seem to be doing it with a twinkle in your eye? You always seem to be smiling. What's your secret to your, you know, playful attitude? So that was number one. Number two, whenever I would post something that was prescriptive in nature, let's say offering people some advice about, you know, you know, completing some objective, that would be some of the content that would most resonate with people. And so when I saw that positive feedback that I was getting, I said to myself, hey, why don't I take a shot at writing a book that's a mixture of my personal experience coupled with ancient wisdoms backed up by contemporary science and see what we get. And so here we are. I love it. Okay. So I think um, it's pretty easy to admit, especially if you look on, you mentioned YouTube, but all social media, um, people are either trying to project that they're already happy and they have a happy life and they point to possessions, experiences, um, their, their own you know physicality. There are many different ways people indicate I'm happy or this is how you can be happy. A lot of that is quite superficial. And to be frank, I think there's a bit of exhaustion with it. People understand that a vacation is, it's, it's a wonderful privilege to be able to go on vacation. You can experience a lot of release and, and uh, you can actually increase your productivity if you take a few days of vacation every year. These are things we know. But there's more to happiness than experiences or being attractive or having a lifestyle that is enviable by other people. It's a much deeper experience, happiness. You talked about uh, the reaction to you, that people see you, you have a smile, you have an innate sense of confidence that comes from something besides experiences. Um, so can you can you go a little bit deeper into that? Because that's what people are really seeking right now. Sure. Great, great question. So to start off with, about 50% of individual differences in happiness scores stem from our genes. So you know, you may have a very sunny disposition and your friend has a more sullen disposition. And so you start off at different points on the continuum. But the good news is that that still leaves 50% up for grabs. And so the types of decisions that you make, the quality of decisions that you make, the, the mindsets that you adopt can take a person who innately is more sullen 
and they could become happier than someone who innately is, you know, has a sunnier disposition. So, because a lot of times people say, well, you know, you just seem to be happy. That's just your genes. Well, no, but I also work hard at being happy. Yes, I'm fortunate enough to have a sunny disposition, but, you know, it wasn't always sunny for me. I went through trials and tribulations. Uh, you know, we can get into, you know, my childhood growing up in the Lebanese Civil War. So we've all had our crosses to bear, you know, in all sorts of ways. But you can try to navigate through life by adopting certain principles that hopefully will allow you to summit Mount Happiness more easily. Okay, so one more follow on there, because you talked about the natural disposition. And I think nowhere is it more evident than sometimes you'll you'll meet children from the same family. And one is bright and bubbly and, you know, almost the experience is like a rush of positivity. And then a sibling, literally same parents, same household, growing up at the same time, only difference is age. And that other sibling has a, a you mentioned it, sullen, um, they're, they're less extroverted. And when you talk to that child, they tend to be more negative. And then you see that also um, in adults. I, I can think of people that I know right now who they're like a ray of sunshine and others that I know, no matter what's happening, even if everything in their life is going well, they'll find something bad to tell you about because they have to tell you something negative. They have to share something that's negative with you. So if it's adjusted by your attitude, if, it, if that's the change you have to make, how does one execute upon that? I mean, it has to be something that comes from the inside, but if you're around someone who's persistently negative and you want to help them become aware of that and begin to make that shift, is that even possible? Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that because one of the, in one of the chapters, one of the early chapters where I talk about the two key life decisions that will either impart great happiness upon you or great misery, I talk about choosing the right life partner and the ideal job. So let's discuss the right life partner in, in, in light of your question. So there are two maxims when it comes to choosing the right partner to be around. Number one, there's the opposites attract maxim. And then there's the birds of a feather flock together maxim. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the research is unequivocal in in demonstrating that when it comes to long-term happiness, long-term stability of a union, of a marriage, it's very much the birds of a feather flock together maxim that, that is operative. In other words, choosing someone with whom you share life goals, values, belief systems. And to your point, if I am someone who scores very highly on the, you know, the adult playfulness scale and you score very lowly on it, well, I can predict that we're likely to have rocky road down the line in our marriage. But if we can assort on that mindset, then we're likely to, to lead a much, uh, you know, happier uh, marriage. And so it is really, really important. You, you know, lust only takes you so far. Many people end up choosing partners because they think that the, you know, the dopamine hit of the, mm-hmm. the lustful phase of our relationship is going to carry us 30, 40 years into the marriage. But that subsides regrettably. What retain, remains, though, is the sense of contentment that you feel and the safety of that other person. And that can only come when we are assorting with people who share our worldviews. So to that end, would it be safe for me to say in, you know, in advising a young person who's not yet married, has not even dating, and they want a certain type of person in their mind, they have this, you know, person with a sunny disposition that in the birds of a feather flock together, uh, kind of a thought process, you would want to then adopt that same attitude yourself and become a, bright person, a sunny person, have a disposition that tends towards the positive, uh, someone who's playful, you you would want to become those things yourself in order to attract a partner of that same ilk. 
I mean, to, to the extent that you can, you know, alter that sunny or sullen disposition, right? So, for example, that, that, speaking of being playful, so I have a chapter, uh, chapter five is, I titled it Life as a Playground. And I basically argue that even very serious endeavors, such as my scientific career, I pursue it with a playful mindset because there's nothing more, you know, uh, enjoyable than engaging in intellectual play. Science is nothing but intellectual play. There's a bunch of variables that are floating around, and I want to make sure that I find which variable cause which other variables. It's puzzle making. But now let's let's talk about this play in the context of a relationship. My wife and I have been together for 23 years. Uh, I mean, there are many reasons why we've had a successful union. One of which is that we both have a very playful attitude with one with one another. So, for example. You know, I tell the story in the book where I kind of walk in with my shirt off and I say, look at this body, look at this body. And then she looks at me and she said, oh, we need to get some uh, foundational strength on the house because I think your ego is now too big for this house. Right. <laughs> so, so, right. So we're ribbing at each on each other. We don't take ourselves seriously. I engage in self-deprecation. She doesn't have to take herself seriously. Right. If she comes to me and says, hey, do I look uh, do I uh, look overweight in those uh, jeans? I might, you know, have a increased nasal voice. No, you look great, right? By doing that, I'm joking <laughs> with her. So, so by so that's what I mean by you know, if you meet the person on in that that you're with on that play metric, boy, because there are so many challenges in a marriage, right? There's mm. parenting, and there is, you know, who knows? There's there's all kinds of things around the corner. But if you've got that childlike you know, desire to play, you're, you're certainly on your way to hopefully having a successful union. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little, just a hair further than you. I've been married for 27 years, and we have a similar dynamic in our marriage where um, a request uh, to, you know, rate an outfit can turn into 10 minutes of laughing and, you know, kind of insults, but also they're, you know, it's all done in love. And also the, my husband does have an outsized opinion of himself, which I reinforce and tear down depending on what day it is. And it's for the hilarity of the moment as opposed to being a serious endeavor. I, I, he knows what I really think about him, but he thinks so highly of himself that it, it's worth you know mentioning and actually poking fun at and being sarcastic with it. And it, you're right. It does take some of the, you know, the humdrum, the vacuuming, the, the cleaning of the bathrooms, the taking out of the trash. You got to have some hilarity in these moments or because I, I don't believe that these things make you unhappy when you take out the trash you're you have a clean home so there's a benefit from that and there is satisfaction in doing work with your hands but there has to be a time where you're laughing and you're just releasing that energy um that kind of per then permeates your home and makes it someplace that you want to be because it's it, you know for all of the uh, instagramming and everything of the maximalism and minimalism and all the different house styles at the end of the day the people who live there have to be enjoying it because no amount of likes and change the way you feel about how you are in your own house. It's the laughter and the love that exists there. Um, and it takes work. And, and it, what you're talking about takes work. Exactly. And just if I can just stay on the theme of, you know, laughter and humor and so on. Uh, look, life, when I, when I go on social media, there are all sorts of reasons to get angry. So I'll just give you a, a, a story that just happened that's really unfolding today. Uh I appeared on Joe Rogan's show last week and, you know, I'm talking to a professional comedian. We're, we're, we're old friends. We're joking around. We're having fun. And at one point we're talking about, you know, different accents that we find attractive or unattractive. And so I, I told him that I had just returned from Portugal with 
with my family and I was, you know, joking and teasing about how unattractive the Portuguese language is in terms of its, you know, auditory quality. And then I switched very quickly. I said that Hebrew, you know, we're Lebanese Jews. I speak Hebrew. So I'm now turning that criticism on one of the languages from my heritage. And I said that, you know, Hebrew is, is vile to the ear. And then I said that Quebec French, I live in Montreal, Canada. And, and by the way, I'm fully Francophone. I learned French before I did English in Lebanon. And I said that Quebec French was an affront to human dignity. Now, that, that's become a trademark phrase that I use jokingly in a bombastic, hyperbolic way to describe things that I don't like. So I, I then took out a bunch of tweets, like I screenshot shot a whole bunch of tweets about, you know, I said that the Beatles are an affront to human dignity. Elvis is an affront to human dignity. Musicals are an affront to human dignity, right? So it's meant in a jocular, funny way. Most people got it. Most people laughed, including French Canadians. But if I were to show you the threats that I've been receiving all day, it, it would behoove you to understand that people could be so nasty and mean-spirited and void of humor. As a matter of fact, the top newspaper in Quebec had nothing to talk about today other than the professor from Quebec who went on Joe Rogan and criticized our language. That's not <laughs> a prescription to live a happy life. So people taking themselves too seriously, <laughs> we'll add that to the list of things that actually work against having a happy life. <laughs> exactly. So I have to tell you, one of my favorite things is to be a little more extreme in either a compliment or an insult to see if the, you know anyone nearby will catch the fact that this is actually a joke and an affront to human dignity. That's clearly whatever comes after that or before it's an opportunity for you to consider and then possibly laugh. I can't see how people aren't getting that this was done in jest. But again, I think politics has really soured people to the point where some people have lost their sense of humor for anything. It's not just politics. Anything that's being discussed has become political and is therefore no longer subject to ridicule, mockery or uh, levity, which makes it difficult to live. I, I don't see how you can live if you can't make fun of yourself, those closest to you, public figures gardening you know exactly. eating and, and, yeah. and one of the one of the hallmarks of having a strong personhood is to be able to withstand the mockery of others right or 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 turning the the sharp tongue on yourself by being self-deprecating in, in my in my previous book not not my current happiness but in the, in the parasitic mind my previous book i have a whole section on the importance of satire and i quote a whole bunch of you know truly poignant quotes about the fact that that which cannot withstand mockery, criticism, ridicule, can't be true, right? So if you have, for example, an ideology, if you have a religion that says, don't you dare make fun of me or of my beliefs, otherwise I kill you, well, then you know that that religion is untrue. Any, so so that, that you can have an entire culture. I, I love Quebec. I'm, I'm forever grateful that I came to Canada when we escaped the Lebanese Civil War. That doesn't mean, though, that it's out of bounds for me to make a aesthetic judgment about how that language sounds. Oxfordian English sounds nicer than Appalachian English. That doesn't mean that I hate Appalachian people. I'm just making a statement about the auditory quality of the two accents so that people can spend their day sending me death threats because I made a jocular thing about the accent, that's not the pathway to happiness. No. In fact, it's one in which they've now expended tons of 
uh, cortisol. They've allowed their cortisol level to be elevated for an extended period of time over someone that they've neither met nor have a very large chance of meeting. And you, on the other hand, could have been eating food. You could have been engaging in other insults, <laughs> listing other things that are an affront to human dignity. You could have been sleeping. You could have been exercising. We don't know what you were up to. We just know that you were not impacted. I mean, obviously, you read what they said. You're a little uh, maybe perplexed by the seriousness of what they're doing. But you have not altered your behavior. Your your cortisol no. level has not increased. So they're hurting themselves by not only not having a sense of humor. I, I find that the most impactful thing I can do nowadays in the age of social media, especially with the amount of time that I spend on screens, is to simply engage either my thumb for scrolling or my mouse for scrolling. If I see something that I don't like, if I keep scrolling, I won't even remember it. But if I stop to make a comment, if I stop to read and think about it for too long, I can derail my whole hour, you know, afternoon, evening, a whole 24 hours, right? I have to make a choice to protect myself in order to be happy. And, you know, it's so interesting about getting to talk to you today, Dr. Sad, and thank you so much for coming on. I know with you going on Rogan and, and these other places, and you have a huge social media, as you mentioned, um, sometimes it can be difficult to make the time to come on to other, like every request. And so it's interesting because years ago, I had a paradigm shift myself and I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty optimistic. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm perpetually sunny, but I'm, I enjoy joking around. I'm pretty lighthearted and I'm upbeat. But I read a book by Dr. Dennis Prager called Happiness is a Serious Thing. It's a little book. And we read it in my book club. So, you know, I rushed out to get the book so I could read it so I could make sure I wasn't sitting there, hadn't read the book for a book club. And as I'm reading through the book, he, he posits, among other things, that it's my responsibility to have a happy, sunny disposition and to choose happiness every day because the people around me are impacted by whether or not I'm happy or sad or angry or vicious or jocular. And so I was already pretty, pretty upbeat, but then I had to go that extra level to say, if I choose not to let negative social media or negative, you know, political news because of what I do for a living impact me as a person, the people around me have more freedom and space to be happy in my presence because I'm not dragging them down. And so this is a duty that I have to my husband. And so you're, you're coming along and you're bringing, uh, you know, research and, and um, the scientific side to this. But it's true. I have I have had a complete I feel like I'm I'm a happier person, but it's much more stable since I read that book. And there's other things that add on to it. And now you're coming in with with what you've written. Um, and also, I, I have to stress, you have a YouTube presence where people can learn more about this. They can read the book, but then they can go and learn more about everything that you're kind of bringing up different worlds together in this concept. Exactly. And and to your point about how we react to particular stimuli, the ancient Greeks already knew that, right? I mean, one of the fundamental tenets of uh, Stoic philosophy is the idea that, you know, when an event happens, what ends up hurting you is oftentimes not the event itself, but your response to the event, right? So when you're scrolling you know, on social media, someone says something obnoxious about you. Yes, it's human nature to get pissed off and stop and try to rebut. But if you just scroll past it, that person will disappear into an abyss of irrelevance and you can go on smiling. So the Stoics know it. And we we just need to be reminded that those ancient Greeks had a lot of wisdom in them. Abyss of irrelevance. Uh, I'm going to be a joy at dinner tonight with these uh, phrases that I'm getting from your conver- from our <laughs> I conversation. I better get the proper attribution. You will. Or I, you will I'll get know it. That you stole it. 
you'll know. But again, to refer to social media, all you have to do if you want to steal something on Facebook is you post a picture of a raccoon and say, thank you. I'm stealing this. So I've already told you I'm taking abyss of irrelevance. I can see this applying to me doing the dishes, me cleaning the bathroom. I can see areas in which I can announce that I'm descending into the abyss of irrelevance as I go in to clean this bathroom. So, I mean, talk to us a little bit about, because you, you have experience in this area. You've obviously talked to a lot of people. You have the research. Can you tell us about anyone that maybe has had a paradigm shift in, in which they come to understand what you're positing here in your book, what you've written about, and then they've had a, a, you know, a, a life change, a sea change? Well, so I can tell you, for example, a story. You know, we're, we're a storytelling animal, right? We, we learn best through vivid accounts right of, of you know of, of you know poignant anecdotes and so in the last chapter of the book i tell the story of you know arguably one of the most uh, uh, incredible guests that i've had on my show and i've had a lot of you know uh, you know luminaries on my show his name is david mccallum you probably don't know who he is he's not a famous person but he's a gentleman who spent 29 years in prison for a murder that he was eventually exonerated of. And so he, he went to prison at the age of 17, and he came out, I think he was 46. And as we were chatting on my show, at one point, you can go watch our chat on, on my channel. It's about maybe five years ago. And as we were chatting, I kind of paused, and I said, you know, David, you must be the reincarnation of Buddha, because I can't imagine how someone could be so you know, filled with grace, so lacking in vengefulness, vindictiveness, you know, vindictiveness. If you're a much better man than I am, because I would want to burn the world down. And then he's, you know, he paused and said, "Well, you know, uh, I have a sister who who's been stricken with cerebral palsy for much of her life, and she's bedridden. She's been bedridden, and yet she still finds time to smile. And so, viewed against that, uh, you know, my my ordeal was not nothing to worry about. And so, that gentleman who who had had almost three decades stolen from his life." could still contextualize his tragedy in, in lieu of other people's tragedies. And so, so to your point about someone who, you know, who's benefited from one of my, you know, uh, insights, well, I tell that story whenever I have someone who's down on themselves and is whining and is in complaining about something that ultimately is quite immaterial, I then tell them that story, and it is so poignant that it usually it, it serves as like a big metaphorical slap to the face, like wake up and stop whining. So that's mm. one one example of many that I've hopefully uh, used to you know motivate people to to lead a help, happier life. It it is it is motivating. I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to you and thinking, my gosh. So uh, as we close out here, I, I have so many other questions, but I I want to make sure that we get to this one. Um, sure. You have in in the book you talk about this, and this is something that. I hate hearing it. I don't think anyone loves hearing this because most successful people have experienced, a, you know, some failure. Sometimes they detail lots of failure, but we don't see that. Usually when someone bursts onto the scene and we become aware of their successful venture, their company, their invention, they've already spent the, you know, 10,000 hours, 20,000 hours, whatever, you know, we, we would quantify. So how does failure play a role and probably even, according to you, actually is key to more happiness. It, precisely. So I have a chapter titled on persistence and the anti-fragility of failure. Anti-fragility is the concept that, you know, it's, it's the old adage that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Or squeaky doors don't break. In other words, if, if Seneca, the famous stoic from 2000 years ago, has a quote about, you know, strong trees 
that have deep roots are those that have that have faced wind stressors and therefore that makes them stronger the trees that haven't faced any stressors become brittle and break off very easily well so now imagine that failure is a form of stressor right because it makes you stronger so I made sure in that in the section of the book on on the failures that you that you're referring to I I identified some of the greatest people of all time in different fields you know Steven Spielberg being rejected three times at the USC film school uh, Michael Jordan arguably the greatest uh, basketball player of all time being cut from his high school sophomore team Lionel Messi the greatest soccer player of all time being told that he can't be a professional soccer player he's too small and slight uh, J.K. Rowling, who is arguably, well, not arguably, is, I think, the most successful author of all time, who's now a billionaire, had, had been rejected by every single publisher until that one last one that accepted her. So the, the road to success is littered with rejections, and the ones who succeed are the ones who are able to deal with that rejection, get, on, get back on the prover- proverbial horse, and win at the game of life. Wow. So the list you named off, these are some people that we would consider to be extremely successful, um, in, in, in excess of successful, who if they'd stopped after the failure, the first rejection, we wouldn't even know who they are. We wouldn't have quit exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Okay. Okay. So is there anything else you feel like can commend the book to people? Although I think we've really, we've done a great job of explaining why we must read this book. It's a must read. Um, is there anything else <laughs> that you'd you. like to cover? I, I, I find yeah. what you're talking about and your use of language to be so winsome and fun. I, I so enjoy people who love the English language and the turn of phrase. It's so much fun to talk to people like that. So I really appreciate that. Um, but anything oh, you'd like to you're add? very kind. Well, I would say one of the other things that I talk, I mean, there are several other secrets that we didn't talk about, but one that might be worth briefly mentioning. I have a chapter that I call the sweet spot, which basically is something that Aristotle had referred to you know, more than 2,000 years ago when he talked about the golden mean. So he argued that if you take, for example, a soldier who is very cowardly in his behavior, that's not good. But if you take a soldier that is very reckless in his courage, well, that's not good either because then they will be a martyr. They'll die very quickly. And so somewhere in the middle between these two extremes is the golden mean, as he called it. The, the Buddhists refer to it as the middle way, right? And so what I do in this chapter is I go through a bewildering number of examples, whether it be at the neuronal level, at the individual level, at the societal level, to demonstrate that that inverted you, that the idea that too little of something or too much of something is not good and you have to find the sweet spot really is the universal law of life. In other words, to live a meaningful, happy, content life is the quest for the sweet spot across many domains. So, for example, alcohol consumption follows that inverted U. Fish consumption follows that inverted U. Uh, perfectionism follows that inverted U. If you're not at all perfectionist, then your work will suffer because you don't have any attention to detail. If you're too perfectionist, as I am, you end up obsessing for days about one misplaced comma that might be in your book, and you end up wasting tons of hours doing silly you know, drudgery. Somewhere in the middle is the right point. So if you can find the sweet spot, then you're well on your way to being a well-adjusted, happy person. Well, I think that this interview helps us, but only if we go ahead and get the book. The book is available now wherever books are sold. 
It is, it is, absolutely. It, it came out exactly a week ago. It's, so far, it's doing really well. And, uh, uh, you know, it's very exciting to, to have people sending me all their positive feedback. It makes me happy. <laughs> and that's something that is actually attainable. And I'm so glad. I'm, I'm feeling pretty happy right now that I got to talk to you on a Friday evening. Great way to slide into the weekend and to look forward to seeing more of your work online. Dr. Gad Sad, and as you mentioned, S-A-A-D is the name. You're the author of The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life, at Gadsad on Twitter. Thank you, sir. It's good to talk to you, doctor. Thank you so much. Cheers. All right, cheers. And we'll be back with more Stacey on the right after this.